We're going to be reading from chapter 1. So Jonah, chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quieten down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done it as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So please turn with me now. We're going to move to the New Testament in Mark. We're going to be reading from chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, starting from verse 35. Verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Father, thank you so much again for your word. Thank you that you speak to us, that you give us this book, even this book. So we pray that our familiarity with this book will not lead us into um, contempt or to, to lead us into thinking, yes, we know this. But we pray that you'll help us, by your Spirit's help, to see it with fresh eyes, to see your astounding, 
and confronting grace. We ask, Father, that you'll bless us in this and you'll help us to grow through this word as your church united together for your mission. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I forgot to mention at the start, keep Jonah open in front of you. We'll be reading through it as a sermon outline on the inside of the bulletin too. Right. When I was 12 years old, 1992-ish, I remember watching a great TV show called The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, produced four years earlier in 1988 by the British Broadcasting Company. It retells the classic children's book by C.S. Lewis of the same name. Now, I grew up as a non-Christian, and so that show, uh, that TV show, uh, was a nice, albeit slow, uh, series about a lion who was a king and a witch who was the enemy and four children who helped the Lion King free Narnia. I became a Christian at university, and only then did I learn that the Chronicles of Narnia are a wonderful allegory of the gospel. The lion, Aslan, represents Jesus. Uh, And so in the book and the TV series, when he dies on the stone table, he does so as a substitutionary sacrifice. That sacrifice breaks the power of the witch who represents Satan and causes her downfall. You see, only later in life did I properly understand what the TV series and the book was all about. And for us sitting here today, I wonder if the book of Jonah, the prophet, is like that. If you've grown up in a Christian home or going to church, then you will probably be fairly familiar with this fantastical story. Growing up as a non-Christian, even I knew about a man who got swallowed up by a big whale and was in there for three days before being spewed back up. I had no idea what that story meant, but I just knew about it. The story of Jonah is so familiar to a lot of us. And if I asked us here today, what is the main point? What is the purpose of the book of Jonah? I think most of us would have familiar answers. I think most of us might point out to how it's a story of grace and mercy. And when you consider the first three chapters, it does sort of sound like that. In fact, many children's Bibles actually often take out chapter 4. And so the story becomes one of a prophet who disobeyed, who repented and then obeyed and told people about God to great success. And so the moral of the story becomes, don't be like Jonah, obey God. But now that we're older, or at least I hope that now we're a bit older, can we see Jonah in a different light? In the proper light that the author of Jonah intended? If we, just look, if we would just relook at what the text of Jonah actually says, would we realize that our childhood memories of it maybe weren't quite that right? And as we relook at this familiar story, perhaps we will see a bigger more profound message come through. But before we get into the story, let's familiarize ourselves with the main actors uh, in this story. There are two main actors. The two main actors are Jonah and the Ninevites, uh, though today we'll also meet a bunch of pagan sailors. Uh, Let's focus first on the Ninevites. Uh, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, which sat around 800 kilometers northeast of Israel. With around 100,000 citizens that we learn later in chapter 4, This was one of the largest cities in the ancient world at the time. Now, unless you have a special interest in it, I don't think many of us are very good at history, let alone ancient history. Thankfully, the science of archaeology and the hard work of historians working through writings and artifacts have given us quite the picture of Assyrian life. 
and the picture is full on. It is bloody, gruesome. And after reading about it, I am very thankful to be living in 2020 in a relatively free country. Uh, and all of us should. So here's a summary of the Assyrian life uh, from Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal Prophet. Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. Assyrian kings often recorded the results of their military victories, gloating of whole plains littered with corpses and of cities burned completely to the ground. The emperor Shalmaneser III is well known for depicting torture, dismembering and decapitations of enemies in grisly detail on large stone relief panels. Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm and hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced their friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues, stretched out their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive, and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Assyrians have been called a terrorist state. Full on, right? This cruelty doesn't go unnoticed by God. Assyria gets singled out by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Nahum, and Zephaniah for special judgment for their cruelty. But as we'll see here in Jonah, Jonah's interaction with them is totally different. Speaking of Jonah, who is this guy? Uh, Jonah gets a, a mention first in 2 Kings chapter 14. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath to, the far, to as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer is in the north of the kingdom. So Jonah here, we get introduced, is working for an evil king, Jeroboam II. Now that gives us the first indication as to what Jonah was like. He's a bit of a compromised man. Prophets were usually famous for calling kings to repent, to turn from their evil, their injustice and idolatry. But here in 2 Kings, we meet a man who, through a prophet, happily works with an evil king to expand the borders and territory of Israel. From this, we, we, what we, uh, what we'll read and what we'll read in Jonah, I think we can infer that Jonah was probably quite patriotic. He passionately loved his country and nation and was probably highly partisan. That is to say, he was probably a highly devoted and loyal follower of Jeroboam II, which makes his calling to head to Nineveh all the more astounding and utterly shocking. A patriotic nationalist called on to be sent to public enemy number one. 
Can you imagine a devoted follower of Donald Trump, one of his advisors, selected to go to ISIS and convince them that Jesus is Lord? That is the shock of this task. And the task again is set out in verse 2. Have a look again. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, the word their evil can also mean disaster. So as we read this, Nineveh, it sounds, we can read it this way, that Nineveh is on its way to disaster. And I want you, Jonah, to go there and warn them about it. To call them out, to call out against them, is to warn them that God will judge them and leaves open the possibility that if they turn from their ways, disaster will not fall on them. Now notice as well in verse 2, the direction of the command. Arise, get up, and go up and east to Nineveh. Now look at the physical movement of Jonah in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So instead of going northeast to Nineveh, northeast, that's this way for you, he heads south to Joppa and extreme west to Tarshish, which is over somewhere in Spain. Instead of going up, he goes down. And notice how he keeps moving down in this story. He goes down to Joppa, down into the ship. He lies down and goes down into deep sleep. And then later on, when he gets thrown overboard, he goes down into the deep water. This is not a case of following bad directions. A couple of years ago, police in southeast Victoria had to rescue a number of motorists who became stuck. They were following Apple Maps, another reason why you should not buy Apple. Just saying. Uh, Let me get back to this. They, They were following Apple Maps, and they were headed to the tourist town of Mildura, but instead they ended up in arid, snake infested Murray Sunset National Park, 70 kilometers away. See, it's not as though Jonah punched in the details of Nineveh into his GPS and got lost. Twice in verse 3, we see that he's running from the presence of Yahweh. He's trying to escape from God, escape from his duty, and hide away in the remotest place that he can think of. Now, why would Jonah do that? I'm guessing here that if you guys audibly heard the voice of God and you had it confirmed that it was the voice of God, you would want to be listening to that and obeying it. So why here does Jonah flee? He is being disobedient, that's for sure. But disobedience is the action flowing out of what he values and where his heart is. So what is driving Jonah? The answer comes in chapter 4, verse 2. Basically, Jonah knows that if he calls out against Nineveh, and if they repent, God will graciously, mercifully, and compassionately hold back his wrath and his judgment. Jonah knows that God is like this, and he hates the very idea of it. It disgusts him. 
See, as we venture through this book over the coming weeks, we're going to find that Jonah is not a nice guy. In fact, there's actually very little redeeming features about him. See, sometimes we treat the Bible as a collection of stories about heroes that we need to imitate. You know, be like David, be like Abraham. And so Jonah becomes a story about how even though Jonah is a bit rebellious, he repents and obeys God. So we, we need to acknowledge our sin, repent and obey God. But if we look at the text itself, we might see that Jonah's story is given to us for another purpose. See, Jonah's movements in verse 3 are already telling us that Jonah isn't just disobedient. He's got some big problems with God's plans. And so he runs. He flees from Yahweh's presence. Which you kind of have to laugh at. How can you escape the presence of the creator of the universe? It feels a tad dumb. The last words of verse 3 have Jonah running from God. But now notice the first words of verse 4. But the Lord. You can run, you can hide, but you cannot escape God's sight. And God has perfect sight. He sees Jonah running. So what does he do? He whips up a massive storm. He balls it into his hands and he hurls it with precision down to Joppa as Jonah's ship is about to set sail. And this is one wild storm. Brisbane has some wild summer storms at times, but I have no clue what it's like to be in a storm at sea and terrified. So I asked Google for help, and thanks to Quora, I found some interesting testimonies of what it's like. So here's one testimony from a guy called Sailor John, a former ocean navigator. He shared these words. When a bad storm hits, The waves rise like mountains. The air is full of flying foam spray, so much that you can hardly see ahead. Imagine 178,000 tons of steel being lifted effortlessly and dropped back into the sea so hard that the bow literally goes under and comes up dripping, creaking with seawater flowing down the sides. Even the most ancient sea dog on board will feel uneasy in his stomach, and many of them throw up intentionally to feel better. You will not see a glimmer of hope in anybody's face during peak storm, except maybe young apprentices who are busy getting awed by the action, blissfully ignorant of the possible deadly consequences. These are the words of an experienced sailor inside one of the largest most well-built and solid cargo ships in the world. For Jonah's sailors, in a much smaller, less well-built sailing ship, a storm like that would have been utterly terrifying. In verse 5, we see the sailors are so terrified that they hurl cargo off their ship to lighten their load, and they each start crying out to their own gods. One sailor over there calling out to his God, another sailor over here calling out to his God, each of them trying to cover all the God bases to see which deity could possibly help, but it's useless. And then we read in verse 5 that Jonah was down, that word again, down in the inner part of the ship, fast asleep. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always found that fascinating. My response is almost like the captain's. How in the world are you asleep? Right? Hear the words again of, this, of Sailor John on what it's like to try and sleep on a ship on a, in a massive storm. 
Sleep is highly erratic. The movement of the ship of the ship will invariably throw you off your bed unless you hold on to something while lying, which means you can't sleep. See, I've always thought of Jonah's sleep as a fake sleep. Like how whenever I'm in bed and one of the kids wakes up and cries out and I hear the crying and I kind of pretend not to hear it, and so I just lay still so that Steph will eventually get up and take care of them. I always thought Jonah's sleep was like that, but apparently not. See, the words fast asleep describe a deep, almost unconscious sleep. It's the same deep sleep that Adam fell into when God surgically removed one of his ribs. So however Jonah managed it, he is completely out. The screams of the captain managed to jolt him up. And perhaps, too, the specific words the captain says. You see what he yells out in verse 6. Read again with me in verse 6. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a a thought to us that we may not perish. See that there, what he says? He says, arise, call out. The same instructions that God spoke to Jonah right at the start of the story. To hear those words on the lips of a pagan sailor would have been unsettling. But the storm kicks back everyone back to reality and it's not going away. It feels like it's getting worse. Like the ship is probably feeling like a piece of wood being tossed about by 50 meter waves. And so they cast lots in verse 7. Right, whoever gets the shortest straw, they are the one responsible for the storm. A famous physicist, Albert Einstein, once wrote to a friend saying, I am convinced God does not play dice with the universe. Speaking better than he knew, the truth is that, God, that with God, nothing is left to chance. He is not playing dice. And in verse 7, God does not play lots either. So the short straw providentially lands on Jonah. Jonah thought that he was running from God's presence, but in God's universe, there is no nook or cranny that anyone, for anyone to remain hidden in. The game is up. In verse 8, the sailors throw all the who, what, when, why, how questions at him. Who are you? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And then Jonah's short response in verse 9 in the middle of the story, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the men respond in verse 10 by asking, what is this that you have done? Which is their way of saying, are you crazy? You fear the God of the sea and the dry land and you're running from him on a boat? Now at this point in the story, the sailors have found the problem and you'd think that they'd start working on a solution, right? The problem is the storm. The reason is Jonah running from God. So Jonah, what should we do? His response a human sacrifice. Throw me overboard and the sea will calm down. Now, why does Jonah offer to do that? We're not explicitly told, but I think we can infer a few things. I don't think Jonah is offering himself up out of mercy or grace for the sailors. I don't think he's doing that. Nor do I think he has compassion on them. You see, so far we can see that he cares very little for them. He knew that the storm was his fault, but he didn't say anything until the lot finally settled on him. 
He didn't answer any of their questions. He's just given a short, curt response. And given that Jonah is running from his assignment to go to Nineveh, getting himself drowned in the sea would have been more preferable in his mind. And we're going to see that confirmed later in chapter 4. He would rather die than see the Ninevites repent. So the sailors choose to act differently, though. They don't take up Jonah's option of throwing him to a certain death in the sea, but they choose instead to do everything possible to save themselves and him. So in verse 13, they start rowing even harder to get back to the dry land, but the storm and the water keep getting worse. You notice how verse 13, the words sea and dry land are used again. It's the God who made the sea and the dry land. He didn't just throw the storm Jonah's way, but he's sitting at the control panel of the storm, turning the variables and the dobs all the way up, making everything worse. And then something surprising happens in verse 14. Pagan sailors who've spent all their time calling out to their own gods, now cry out in unison to Yahweh. Have a look again at verse 14. O Lord, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. The Lord there, capitalized, is Yahweh, God's personal name. The personal name that he revealed to Moses as he set Israel free from Egypt. The personal name that he gave to his people, Israel, so that they should know him personally. Only God's people knew and used God's personal name. Then when they throw Jonah in and the sea calms, we read down in verse 16. The men feared Yahweh exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. Sometimes people make vows to God and and offer obedience and vows when they're in the depths of trouble and stress. They are called called foxhole conversions, right? After the little hiding places that soldiers would often use uh, in the stress and the heavy, uh, under heavy fire. Dear Lord, get me out of here and I promise I'll follow you. But do you notice that they offer the sacrifices and make the vows after the storm and the sea had calmed down. And the language of fearing Yahweh, of offering up sacrifices, of making vows and to obey and follow Yahweh, that is the language of conversion. The men had met Yahweh in his fury and by his mercy they had lived. Filled with exceeding fear, they now bow down before him. Focus on that word fear for a moment. Notice how often this theme of fear comes up in this story. In verse 5, when the storm hits, the sailors are afraid. Jonah says in verse 9 that he fears Yahweh. At this news in verse 10, the sailors are exceedingly afraid. Then uh, at the end, after everything has happened, the sailors fear Yahweh. Jonah presents for us this kind of contrast of cowering fear and true and proper fear of Yahweh. To fear Yahweh, to fear God, is to be in reverent awe and worship of Him. And at the same time, to be properly terrified of God's power and might. John Piper puts it this way, God is horrifically dangerous to run away from. 
and we should be terrified to run away from God. But if we will stay with him, his growl is a growl of our protection, not our destruction. Jonah ran from God and discovered the terror of running away from him. The sailors stay with God afterwards and experience the growl of God's protection. In the Bible, the fear of Yahweh leads to wisdom and wise living. The fear of Yahweh is to unlock the wise and the godly life. Jonah claims to fear Yahweh, but all of his actions show that his fear is merely lip service. The pagan sailors outshine Jonah in this way and almost in every way in this story. Their actions show what true fear looks like. They sacrifice to Yahweh and vow with their lives to follow him. See, while the response of Jonah and the pagan sailors in fearing Yahweh is a big theme, I do, however, think that there is a bigger theme. Have you ever wondered who are the lost people in this story? Right? We, the Ninevites are certainly lost in their evil ways, and that's why God wants Jonah to go to them. The pagan sailors are lost as well, calling out to their own gods and then only turning to Yahweh after the storm clears and Yahweh's word through Jonah comes true. And so the pagans in this story are lost. And yet Jonah is lost as well. For someone who claims to know the way, who claims to know God, he tries to flee from God's presence. He's on the run. He's trying to hide from his duty. Now, with everyone in this, everyone in this story lost, what hope is there? Well, Jonah chapter 1 reveals for us the source of hope. And it's the God who pursues those who are lost. Nineveh are lost, so God sends them a prophet. The pagan sailors are lost, so God encounters them in a storm. Jonah runs. So God sends the storm after him, providentially maneuvers the lots to fall on him, intensifies and then calms the storm, and then in verse 17 appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. God pursues wayward people. Now in the New Testament, Jesus tells two parables that echo this very thought. In Luke 15, he tells the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Now, in the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus tells this story. So, he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. See, in this parable, Jesus gives us a glimpse into the need for the search a precious lost sheep. And then in the next parable he says, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I found the coin that I had lost. Here in the second parable, Jesus a glimpse, gives us a glimpse into the intensity of the search the lengths that God goes to to find those who are lost, even his own. And when we, what we see here in Jonah 1 
uh, and what we'll see through the book and what Jesus echoes is that God goes to great lengths to chase after those who are lost because he has compassion on them. And one day, that compassion would lead God to the greatest length ever that he will go to to pursue his lost people. Sending his son Jesus into the world to be sacrificed in our place so that we would be rescued. The coming of Jesus helps us make sense of this whole story. And in fact, in one story in the Gospel of Mark, we have an incident that has Jonah 1 painted all over it. In another boat, we find a group of men and a central character. Again, we see that central character falling fast asleep. Again, a wild storm whips up to the point that veteran fishermen are afraid. Again, the central character remains asleep during the storm and is waking up to the yells of, Why are you still sleeping? Don't you care? But this time, the central character isn't on the run. No, he is right where he is supposed to be. He stands up, rebukes the winds and the waves, and everything becomes calm. And again, the men respond in great fear, asking among themselves, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, Jonah offered to sacrifice his, himself to save the pagan sailors from the storm. Jesus, the one who rebukes the wind and the sea, would end up sacrificing himself to save the world. Jesus is the one who we should fear and ultimately worship. So have you? Have you responded with appropriate fear of Jesus? We should be properly terrified of the one who controls even the wind and the waves. And at the same time, we should be in awe that he would give his life for ours. And maybe today is the first time that this has clicked for you. That Jesus is the one who invites you to be found. See, at its heart, sin is the desire and the bent in all of our lives that pushes us to want to live our own way. It's what drove Jonah. Instead of living how God wanted him to live, he chose to do what he wanted. And it's what drives, it's, it's that drive in all of us. It causes us to push against the God who created us and loves us. Sin causes us to rebel against the God who made the earth and the seas. And the fallout of living for yourself is that we become self-interested people, caring only for ourselves. We end up wrecking our relationships and wrecking other people. Last week, on the north side of Brisbane, a man set his ex-wife and three children on fire before killing himself. I cannot imagine, as a father of three young children, how anyone could do something so terrible and tragic. And yet, the impulse that drove that man to commit such a heinous crime is in all of us. The drive to commit such evil and the capacity to do it is in all of us. God will punish that. When we feel that punishment and the impact of our sin and in the brokenness of our world and the brokenness of our own lives, 
and one day he will punish it properly, with the only punishment being eternal death and separation from his goodness and to be lost forever. But friends, God has not left us to be lost forever. He has pursued us all. He has hurled his son from heaven down to earth and he has made a way for us to be found. So do you want to be found? Speak to me afterwards. Speak to the friend who brought you here today to find out more. And for those who claim to be found, who say that they do fear God, are you living like it? For those of us who have been found by Jesus, our lives are to be lived for him. We live holy lives directed not to pleasing ourselves or doing what we want or building up our brand or image. We live lives directed to pleasing God. Jonah said he feared God, but none of his actions up until that point suggested that he really did. And if we say we follow Jesus, then we would be fools not to follow his word. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that anyone who hears his words and doesn't put them into action is like the fool who builds his house on sand and then has to watch it crumble at the first storm. So friends, I want to ask you, are you hearing Jesus? Are you listening to him and being willing to obey? Let us be those who fear God in word or deed. And over the coming weeks, we will tease out what this looks like in more detail. For now, though, let's ponder that question and let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the awesome and mighty and powerful God. We should be rightly terrified of you. Father, you are one who also pursued us in our lostness. You sent your son to, at great length to go and be a, a sacrifice in our place that we might be reconciled back to you. Father, help us to see this clearly. Help us to fear you rightly and help us to glory and how much Jesus has done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you sufficiently fear God? Seeing his intense pursuit, we must sufficiently see who God is and who we are and to fear him and to be able to appreciate the grace that is so intense. Let us rise and sing our song of response, Amazing Grace.